Hello and welcome to 100 Campaigns That Change the World. I'm Steve Tibbet, uh, and today's interview is with Alva Smith, who's an Irish academic, founder of the Women's Education Resource and Research Centre at University College Dublin, um, and as well as being involved in campaigns on women's liberation in the 1970s, on equal marriage. Um, she was, uh, and she was uh, named one of the Time 100 Most Influential People alongside uh, the fellow co-directors of the Together for Yes campaign, which she helped found, and which was an umbrella organising for the uh, organisation for the campaign for re repealing the Eighth Amendment of the Irish Constitution. And it's, um, and it's that campaign that we're focusing on today. Uh, now, the Eighth Amendment was agreed in 1983 and afforded the unborn the same rights as a pregnant woman. And Together for Yes campaigned successfully for a yes vote in the 2018 referendum to remove the Eighth Amendment uh, and hence the constitutional ban on abortion in Ireland. So I think there's lots of interesting stuff in this interview. The campaign was hugely successful. And Alva's one of the people you know, directing it, making sure it didn't make mistakes, uh, including the types of mistakes that lots of coalition campaigns do make. Uh, it was a very successful campaign. I think there's a lot to learn from it. And so um, here's the interview. Hello and welcome to 100 Campaigns That Change the World. And I'm here with Alva Smith and we're talking about the uh, Together for Yes uh, national referendum campaign on, on abortion in Ireland. Welcome, Alva. Thank you, Steve. It's good to be here. So, yes, um, that, that, that was a, um, the, the campaign was a very successful one. So, uh, you know, I wonder... Um, a bit if you could fill in a bit of the history of sort of how how the campaign came to be and in particular how the referendum came into being um because that was a that was a key moment obviously in the success of the campaign well yes certainly i mean from my point of view it, it has really covered all of my adult life the struggle for the right to abortion in Ireland I mean it literally goes back to a referendum which we had in 1983 which actually um, put the prohibition against abortion into our constitution we had a law which we inherited from you in Britain, of course, in 1861, the Offences Against the Person Act, which prohibited abortion and made it uh, a crime punishable originally by um, uh, in life imprisonment. And then it, that was reduced to 14 years in Ireland. So that, you know, it was completely prohibited. It didn't happen. Uh, we benefited from the 1967 Abortion Act in Britain, Women from Ireland travelled across to Britain one way and another for abortions for many, many, many years. And in 83, a referendum was um, really, I think, made up by extreme Catholic uh, forces in Ireland who worked in collusion with the government 
they held a referendum to put this prohibition in the constitution, which happened. And that gave effectively an equal right to life to a woman and a fetus or a mother and a baby, as the constitution called it. And we, we did resist that in 1983, but two thirds of the electorate voted in favor. So it was a very hard won battle. It was very bitter. Uh, the bitterness really rankled and lingered during the 1980s as women had to continue to go to Britain, as there were very unfortunate circumstances which arose. And then in 1992, we had another referendum, um, which asked us three questions. It was three referendums. Should we include or should we interpret the threat of suicide as grounds for saving a woman's life, as grounds for an abortion to save a woman's life? Um, and should we, should women have the right to have information about information in other jurisdictions? And thirdly, should women have the right to travel abroad for abortions? And the Irish pop- population, the Irish electorate very sensibly said actually yes to all of those three questions, but that didn't chipped the fact that we had this uh, constitutional uh, prohibition. And we had yet another referendum in 2002 when the issue of the threat to suicide as grounds for abortion came up again. And this was always in relation to specific cases, Steve, which I won't go into now, but cases which were uh, always uh, situations of great distress and suffering for the women uh, involved and then eventually we had started around about 2010 after the crash to sort of try and get our house in order again. And say some of us, a couple of us had said, look, we really must put this issue of abortion back on the agenda. And at that time, we were also fighting for the right to marriage for lesbian and gay people. So these two issues were beginning to come up. Um, the right to marriage for lesbian and gay people was probably a little bit more advanced. And even way back in 2010, 2011, I was thinking to myself, because I'm lesbian, I was involved in that struggle as well. Um, I was thinking, I think it would be, I think it would be easier if we got the right to marriage for lesbians and gays before the referendum on abortion. In other words, if we win one, we can win the other, but it has to be this one, lesbian and gay first, because I, I figured we slightly better chance of winning that. And then in 20, and I, I think I was right about that actually. And then in 2012, uh, we had a very tragic event. A young woman died. Um, she had come to work in Ireland from India, actually, with her husband, and she died uh, of sepsis in a hospital in Ireland because she was refused a termination when she was inevitably miscarrying. And that caused absolute outrage. Her name was Savita Halapanava. And following on from there, it seemed very, very clear. I mean, the, the expression of public outrage was such that you recognized, I, I and others recognized immediately that this was the emotional affective moment when the direction of abortion campaigning was going to change. And I think that for me, the lesson I learned there was that you're always looking out for those emotional moments when people are feeling something really strongly for reasons which are reasonable, which are absolutely valid, but which go beyond reason where they feel this has to change. And it was that kind of, of moment. So 
Well, this was a very horrible, tragic death and a dreadful thing to happen and very shaming. Um, something ultimately positive came from that, which was eventually recognized by the family of that poor young woman. And we began to organize from 2012 to um, bring government to the point of agreeing to have a referendum, which is what you have to do. And I mean, I think it just shows you that a written constitution can be a terrible noose around the neck of a population. But at the same time, it can also give you a tremendous focus for your your campaign, your challenge. It can give you a very precise target for what you want to do. Um, and I, I, we take it from 2012. Yeah, I mean, we'll uh, we'll come back to that shortly. But I did want to ask you, um, you know, so you talk, you talked about these increasing, I guess, anomalies of the law, the, the sort of medical arguments and the the specific cases which built up a sort of, I, I guess, a, a sense that 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 law that that part of the constitution was was untenable. But but do you think something else changed in the meantime? You had this this quite sort of big, or well, fairly big majority in favour in 1983, and by the time you'd got to 20, uh, 22, you, you, uh, sorry, that's the wrong date, isn't it? Is uh, twenty eighteen? Yeah. Um, things had shifted very significantly. So, I mean, to what extent do you think it was just the, the build-up of those anomalies and medical, the medical evidence, if you like? Uh, and to what extent do you think the Irish public had shifted um, over, over that time? Oh, I mean, I, I think that, you know, very the, both marriage equality and abortion represented very profound social change in Ireland, but they were the apogee of that change. They were, if you like, the end point, although there's always more afterwards, by the way, it doesn't just stop there, but they were very important moments when there was a kind of recognition by the electorate and by the population as a whole that Ireland had changed, that Ireland had changed enormously over the decades since well, really, since the end of the Second World War, I suppose, in in effect, and that this that these two issues, interestingly, represented important and significant ways in which that change had occurred, and what it was we were effectively putting behind us. I wouldn't talk about a revolution or a rebellion, but I mean there was definitely, and very specifically, a particular kind of morality, a particular way of looking at. Um, the world. And very specifically, there was the whole issue of the control of social and sexual behavior, and therefore of women and of gender more broadly by the Catholic Church, that they were things that were very much at issue, both in 2015 for the marriage equality referendum and for even more so, I think, for abortion in 2018. So it was as if that whole structure and scaffolding that had kept Ireland together since the middle of the 19th century, which was nailed into place by a very authoritarian, profoundly patriarchal um, church, that, that that was being dismantled. But of course, y- you don't dismantle a structure of that kind in one go. It is a process. And I suppose that part of the part of the art of campaigning is always 
that capacity to recognize when part of the, there is a part of the scaffolding that your campaign or that campaigning generally can actually, you know, hurl to the ground or take apart. Um, and I, I think that we certainly spotted that in relation to marriage equality in the early 2000s. And it was totally there for abortion, but you do have to choose your moment. And, but there is never one factor that leads to that kind of very profound change. Of course not. And the ca- a campaign is something that builds on uh, that. Yeah. So you have that platform. Let's get into the campaign a bit. So who, who were the key players in this campaign? How did you come together? Well, we came together uh, round about 20, in, in very specifically in 2012, when some of us following a piece of legislation that had been enacted in relation to abortion, um, felt that, you know, now is, and after the death of Savita Halepanaba, now is the time that we have to seize this opportunity when feeling is running very high. And what we need to do is to bring together as broad a, a platform to lobby for change and to mobilise for change as we possibly can, because this is not something which we are going to be able to win on the basis, first of all, we're going to have to have a referendum in order to uh, introduce abortion legislation uh, in Ireland. So, you know, we need to bring in more than the feminist and pro-choice groups, for example, and this was something that we were already learning in relation to marriage equality. And it's kind of hard to talk about one in a way without the other because there was a, a whole social process there. But it seemed very clear to myself and another uh, woman, Sinead Kennedy, who's a long-time campaigner as well, that what we should do is actually set up a platform to do that thing, to bring groups and organisations across a wide social spectrum together. And we did that. So we set up a coalition, which we call the Coalition to repealed the Eighth Amendment because that was the article in the Constitution that prohibited abortion. And we called it that very specifically because the Irish society never talked about abortion. The word was not used. You never saw it in newspapers, media. Uh, women didn't go and have abortions in Britain. In fact, it was deeply secret. And the, the coded language was, um, well, she took the Ryanair or in, in earlier times, it had been she took the boat, which meant this woman went to Britain to have an abortion. So you had to be very careful. The Irish population was not ready to, I think, go around talking about abortion. So already in 2012, we were thinking about a very broad, cohesive movement that we would have to build. And we were thinking about the ways in which language was so important and was going to be so important in this campaign. Um, the point about a cohesive movement uh, and the language that we used, I think, was also doubly important in that a lot of the organisations that we needed to bring in, including the trades unions, for example, uh, they didn't have pro-choice policies. And the vast many of the organisations had links with the Catholic Church or had been funded by the church at some stage or another and would not have been willing or able to join a coalition which said we are the co- pro-choice coalition or the coalition for the legalization of abortion. So, um, and then there was the broader point that we, 
because abortion was talked about in these circumlocutions, in a way, we were kind of echoing that and hoping to move towards something uh, more broader. And I mean, I remember, Steve, when we set up the coalition, people, professionals in the business, so to speak, in marketing and advertising and so on, said to me, people will never know, they won't know what you're talking about when you talk about repeal. And I said, well, yes, but what are we to do? Because they don't want to talk about abortion. So what we have to do is give them another way of coming at this issue. The old ways don't work. Um, yes. Well, one of the, we spent three years building our coalition and in about 2015, we went to, um, Actually, somebody I had worked with politically before, who does a, a company which does a lot of kind of promotion and building of messaging, working through, and who's a person who ran as a very good friend. And I said, look, we've no money, but can you help us do this? And he said, yes, we've got your back. Uh, we're there for you with this. And we started a process. Um, I mean, I suppose we had really over the three years been building the trust of people like that and demonstrating that we were for real, that we were determined to do this, that the timing was right. And we started a process then of really thinking through how we needed to reframe the issue of abortion for an electorate which was fed up, exhausted, weary and cross about the number of referendums we had already had which was terrified that it would be divisive, that it would divide the country and divide families and so on, and which just simply did not want to touch it with a barge pole. Uh, it was not happy about the hypocrisy um, that reigned where everybody knew that women went to Britain for abortions, but it was better than the awful bitterness and divisiveness which had reigned in previous campaigns. So we started that process of, of, of uh, trying to find out what it was that voters, people generally were afraid of in relation to abortion. What were their fears? What were their anxieties? And beyond that, what ultimately were their hopes and aspirations? If you could move them, could they be moved beyond fear and anxiety to seeing something more positive? And that research was done. Obviously, there was a lot of reading, discussing. It also helped to bring our coalition closer together because any big coalition, you've got a lot of differences of opinion. Um, we brought together a kind of consortium of the big organizations to, to do this in conjunction with our wonderful company language was its name. And we did focus group research, which we were basically still doing even into um, uh, the beginning of 2018. So from 2015, 2016, you could say onwards, we were doing that. And that was hugely helpful, giving us an understanding and showing us that actually what we would, you had about, you know, 20% of the population, apparently, and this was confirmed by polls, were absolutely 150% against abortion. And you had another 25, maybe even 30% who were more in favour and even pro-choice, um, abortion on request and so on. And then you had a big, quite, quite, quite a, a wide range of people 
who were located somewhere between those two points, who actually were not only capable, but really understood the fact that there was a human issue here, that there was a reality here, uh, which needed to be faced. And when there was any kind of appeal to their humanity, as had been the case with the Savita Halapanava situation, they felt, oh, this, this, we can't go on doing this. It, this is just not right. So the, there was the beginning of uh, an openness to hearing a bit more about what we needed to do. And, and that was obviously where we were going. And that was how our messaging was going to be framed to address specifically that very wide range of people. Demographically, it, it was very wide and that was reflected in the results actually. Um, and we, we set about reframing that whole, uh, topic that the so-called narrative around abortion. And indeed, we often had people coming from other countries saying, oh, but you're not really talking about abortion as a human right. We were saying, well, no, because actually, while of course it is and should be a human right, um, it, that's not what people really respond to. What people respond to much more actively and positively is that sense that this is something Abortion is a need which can occur in the life of any pregnant person at any time. And that to deny that right is to deny them not so much their freedom, but their right to well-being, to health, to, to leading a, a flourishing life, if you like. So that it was, it became very clear to us that we needed to not talk about abstract things in our message. Yeah, it seems to me that you were talking about human stories rather than human rights. Well, human experiences, certainly, and ultimately stories did become very important, although I and many others, and I think um, so many uh, campaigners, are always very loath to... To say to people, you need to talk about a very personal experience in a public way in order for this to, to happen. But effectively, that is, that is really in a way what happens. People want to know, they're eager to know what are the, what, what are the life stories? What are those experiences? How does it really happen? And that is what moves them emotionally. That's what moves that that's the affective part. But I think having said that, I think there are always huge ethical considerations for campaigners in that situation. And that you have to be incredibly careful never to overuse or to exploit stories, never to make assumptions about them, always to provide safety nets and protections and training and so on for people. Um, but stories were a very important mechanism, if you like, or a very important tool in changing a people's hearts in particular. And ultimately, the interesting thing is that people knew in their heads that this really wasn't right, but there was an alternative morality there, which was saying, yes, it is, you have to do this. So what was really important for us was to shift it off that moral terrain, 
that this is not about morality. This is about well-being. This is about health. And in fact, that was really the key, the keystone of the messaging in the campaign. We ended up having um, basically two messages, three messages maybe at most. And the first one was the important one. They were the three Cs. The first one was about care. Do we care about women? And do we care about women who need care? And a woman who needs an abortion needs care. So we very rarely during the campaign used the word abortion without talking about abortion care. So it put it into a very different kind of arena. The second C in that was, was always an appeal to people's sense of compassion. That is to say that this is not about the old ways of being judgmental and condemning. This was about allowing ourselves to say, for example, I don't approve of abortion, I don't like abortion, but truly it is not for me to judge when a woman needs one. So I can't put myself in the shoes of the the judger. And just to finish on that point, there was a, a wonderful project which was not actually started by the headquarters campaign, but which came from beyond it or alongside it, which was simply caught in her shoes, where people wrote in, women wrote in about their abortions and said, put yourself in my shoes. What would you have done? We're going to uh, stop there for a short break and we'll be back in a moment with with Alva Smith. Welcome, we're back with Alva Smith talking about uh, the campaign um, um, for abortion rights in Ireland. Um, and Alva, I wanted to ask you about the role of politicians in all of this. And in my readings, it seemed to me that you were trying to keep, in some ways, politicians at arm's length. But in, in other ways, you know, it may have been helpful that politicians weren't that vocal necessarily uh, one way or the other. Although it seems also to me that perhaps the majority of politicians were probably you know, in your favour, but what, how, I don't know, what's your assessment of all of that? That's a really very key question and it's very, very central to understanding um, that campaign and also to understanding constitutional referendum campaigns in Ireland. Um, you're quite right. You need the politicians in the first instance to agree. You need the government to agree to hold a referendum. Uh, so on the one hand, however, because the referendum is a vote by the people, about the people, for the people, it has not to be seen not to be led, ideally, by politicians. But the third dimension of that is that, of course, once politicians do, uh, I was going to say jump on the bandwagon, perhaps I should be more a little more polite and say when they join the bandwagon, um, they want to be seen to be leading it because they see votes. Um, and I, therefore, the whole business of politician management was very important from the get go. 
And I'm thinking back to 2012, not just March 2018, when the campaign officially started. Uh, and we undertook a very um, determined process of lobbying politicians as and from about 2013, 2014, to get them to agree to hold a referendum. And in fact, what they did was to determine that in 2016, that they would hold a citizens' assembly to discuss the issue and to make recommendations to government, which government would be free to accept or reject as they pleased, it should be said. But that tactic had been used in the marriage equality campaign and had worked very well. Uh, there was a constitutional convention which recommended by something like 83% or something, or 90% even, that there should be a referendum. And they more or less reran something similar. There were no politicians in the um, Citizens' Assembly for abortion, as there had been in the previous one in 2014. But um, we, but but we had brought government to the point where in 2016 they knew they had to do something about it, and that was their way of dealing with it. And to begin with, I and many others were were very annoyed actually, and saw that as a kind of a distraction, a way of letting of government trying to let itself off the hook. And in fact, we had um, a, a new government in power, and I, I think there was maybe an element of that uh, in it to begin with. But we also decided at the same time that we would work very closely, we would engage very fully with that assembly, that we would ensure that our members, and at that stage, we, having started with 12 members in the coalition, I think we had 100 or something at that point, and, they, you know, the big heavy hitters, as well as lots of smaller groups and organisations. So we um, had a, a, a strategy of uh, making submissions to the assembly uh, we spoke with the assembly organizers, the administration and so on. Um, I and uh, one or two others regularly attended the assembly meetings, which were over a six to eight month period, uh, as observers, of course. Um, and, you know, we stayed very close to the assembly. We said, okay, well, this is strategically somewhere where we have strategically this is our target of interest in 2016 is to stay with the citizens assembly and do everything we possibly can to ensure that they hear what we need them to hear that they hear our messages that they hear our side of the story um and we did that and i think we did it very efficiently and and very well and i mean i there were lots of quite amusing moments at the beginning I would try and listen in to the assembly members' conversations in the coffee queue until the administrators realized that I was not an assembly member. And they said, no, no, I had to go and get my coffee in a different queue. Uh, but they were very shy and very reluctant. And then eventually I had also worked out that the, the women's bathrooms, the women's loo were a great place to hear what the women assembly members at least were thinking. So I used to go there <laughs> during all of the breaks. And eventually they started recognizing me and saying, don't worry, we got your back on this one. We think that there definitely should be a referendum. So I think it, there was, it was a really interesting process and it was live streamed. The public could listen in and watch. It was reported in the media. Um, 
we at that stage had really great uh, media people working alongside us and helping us with what we were doing. Um, mostly pro bono, I have to say. It was really amazing. Um, and that, that it worked out very well. In fact, the Citizens Assembly recommended that there should be abortion on request for 14 weeks, uh, not the 12, which government ultimately uh, determined. Uh, but they went, so they went further than even we, uh, in our coalition to repeal the Eighth Amendment had expected. And that I think was absolutely tremendous and a great tribute to all our members as well, who had written in submissions, uh, we made oral presentations, uh, we insisted that there be invitations for oral presentations sent to both sides, of course, um, because we knew we would do well, and we did. So the politicians, when they saw the way in which 99 so-called ordinary citizens were going, and they, they were getting this sense of the dynamic drive of this whole movement. Uh, they were coming on board. The politicians were coming on board much more rapidly. It, it was then the recommendations were referred to a special committee of our parliament and they somewhat watered down the recommendations, but actually not that much really. Uh, and, uh, Ultimately, their recommendations became the basis of the law, which is now in place, which I and many others believe is still very restrictive, but which uh, has nonetheless enabled eight and a half thousand women to access abortion in Ireland last year. So while it's not meeting all of the needs and the, the Citizens Assembly was a very important milestone. It was the you know, it brought the politicians on board, but it also gave huge visibility to the issue. And in any campaign of this kind, you're always aware of what is your strategy for awareness raising and for educating your um, potential voters. So it was a tremendous public process of public education, which was really important. But I think... The way we handled the approach to that was indicative, I think, of the always strategic di dimension and direction of this campaign. Um, we behaved strategically from the beginning and we kept to, we didn't keep to the same identical strategy. We, we allowed that to evolve. It had to evolve, but we were always very aware uh, that this was not just about shouting about the need for abortion, which most of us had grown up actually doing, but that we needed to be to be very clever about it and very strategic. What, what, what about the forces ranged against you? Could you talk a bit about you know, the opposition? There was also a coalition of groups that were ranged against you. Um, uh, and you talked a little bit about the acrimony about this issue in the past was that acrimony taken through into the campaign did it get nasty at times well i mean like all campaigns uh, which where public feeling is running high there were of course times that were very difficult they tended to i'll go back to the first part of your question in a minute but i mean they tended to arise really on television debates in the immediate run-up to the campaign, which people always think 
uh, to the referendum, which is what people think is the real campaign. Your real campaign starts years beforehand, of course. Um, there were some, there was certainly nastiness and uh, on the doorsteps because the canvas was really, really, really important. Talking with people, uh, we definitely had uh, an approach to uh, canvassing and debating and discussing, which was that you have conversation, not confrontation. And I think that was extremely important. So again, we had a strategy for all of that, just as we talked about abortion care and health and well-being and need and necessity and so on, rather than arguing um, the when life begins, for example, which had been the key uh, the key point in previous campaigns, we had shifted the debate and shifted the discussion to very different terrain. So that helped enormously. And our strategy was fundamentally not to enter into those back and forth debates, except in the very limited circumstances of official debates, generally speaking on radio or TV. And in order to do that, we had to be very careful about how social media were managed. Um, and I would say that that really is your big, big, big challenge. So, for example, in 2015, we were already managing social media for marriage equality. By the time we came to 2018 for appeal, it had grown exponentially. And indeed, Facebook and I think was it also Twitter had to stop, um, had, had, had to take very unusual and specific measures to control what was going out on Facebook and um, other social media because funding was coming in from other jurisdictions and that is not allowed in um, Irish referendums. You cannot receive funding from abroad. So, you know, it was really very, very, very interesting. But basically, our, as I said, you know, our, our, our strategy was not to enter into the bitterness of the back and forth, but to try at all times to move, to stay on our own terrain of delivering a message which was much more positive and of engaging people in a conversation. And even saying that was helpful, I think, that we were not there. And that, that, that I think very much chimed with something a wonderful, um, advocate and a barrister actually who has since died, Noel Whelan, told me back in about 2014, he said, he said, Alva, you, you are not out to win an argument. You're out to win a referendum. And it was such a really, really, for me, just personally, it was incredibly powerful because I said I, I, to myself, okay, I'm not here to prove that our side is, has the better arguments. What I'm here to do with other people is to persuade people to open their hearts and their minds to understanding why this is a real need and why, and, and why it's time and more than time to change our regulation of abortion in this country. It was really powerful, really helpful. And I think for a lot of campaigners, there's a moment when somebody says something to you and it opens up a whole way of thinking about 
how you bring people with you, because that's what it is. It's about bringing people with you. And it's so much better to bring people with you by inviting them to join than by hectoring them and telling them they have to join. And the other side didn't do that. They went on hectoring and bullying. They were not a coalition. They were three very divided organizations. If they had been a coalition, we might have had a much harder time. They fought among themselves. They put up posters which were hugely confrontational, basically hugely enlarged poster-sized photographs of a fetus inside a woman's belly, with the result that kids all over Ireland, outside supermarkets and community halls and even churches, were saying to their parents, is that a baby? What is that a baby? And parents were getting very, very, very annoyed. They left these posters up. So, you know, I would have to say that while the opposition was mighty and had a huge amount of money, far more than we had, certainly to start with, they ran a very bad campaign because they ran it exactly on the old dinosaur lines that they had run previous campaigns. You mentioned before you were sort of canvassing, street canvassing. I think merchandise was also quite merchandising and you know, t-shirts and, and all of that. It's quite yes. a big thing. I mean, so yeah, you had, you had all of that covered. Um, was there though anything in particular, um, that you did or maybe any key moments, you know, other than the one you've already mentioned where you thought, well, this is actually, this is actually some, you know, a moment that the conversation has changed or where the political dynamic has shifted. Um, and can you attribute that back or, back to any particular, um, I don't know, thing that you did, speech that was given, TV moment, that, that sort of thing? Well, I, I'm not absolutely sure that I can. Somebody else might be able to pick on something. I do think that uh, at the very beginning, around 2017, um, a wonderful young woman, Anna Cosgrove, got the idea of, of getting black sweatshirts printed simply with the word repeal in white. And these were distributed and sold to young people all around the country. And they started wearing them, going back home for the weekends and wearing them around the villages and towns of Ireland. And I think that that, that, that was really very important. I do think the Citizens' Assembly um, results, their recommendations, that was another very, very important uh, moment. I think um, during the actual campaign itself, Savita Halapanava's father spoke about the importance of the campaign. That was very deeply moving and touching people. You know, it was, I suppose, really reminding people that there was that absolutely heartbreaking situation for him and, and, and his family and that he was glad that we were doing something to ensure, to try to ensure it wouldn't happen again. So you did, of course, have those kinds of moments during the campaign. Uh, the television debates, perhaps not so much. They People say they vote on the basis of what they've heard in the television debates. But actually, I don't think that's true because all of our own polling showed us what was happening before those debates started to happen. And indeed, if we had believed our own polling, 
uh, we would have maybe relaxed a little bit more in the month of May when the referendum was actually held. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't think that there was one moment that turned people around. I do think it was that steady, steady, steady build throughout. And then probably in local areas, you may have had, you know, somebody coming out and, and speaking. I mean, we did have, it was, it was lovely when, when men started to become a bit more involved and we worked very hard to try and involve them because they had tended to sit back and say, you know, this is, this is not for me to talk about because really a woman's issue. We're saying, no, no, this is about this whole country and the values we have and how we think about freedom and how we think about um, people's well-being and how we think about all of those um, things that matter to us, like equality, for example. So, um, but there were, there were some moving moments then. But the, the big, the big moving moment was when we won, frankly. Yes, I'm sure. And, and, you know, as a winning campaign, sometimes it's difficult, isn't it, to reflect on? Is it easier to say, to sort of regret things or say what you, what might have gone wrong, what you might have done differently? Yes. If you're not successful. But can you allow yourself that? Was there anything that you think, oh, actually, with hindsight, I wish we hadn't done that or that, was yes. wrong, or that messaging was wrong? Um, I, I don't, I, no, I don't think our messaging was wrong. I think our messaging by and large, you know, overall, uh, was right. But there were a couple of things that I felt, and I think many of us felt we could have done a lot better on. Um, one of them was really how we, um, how we managed, how we spoke with young campaigners. And I think we might have put in more, uh, counseling or training for them. Uh, there was a very unfortunate moment when completely by mistake, an internal document, a sort of a headquarters document went, went out saying, don't say choice, always use the word decision. That was dreadful because of course you naturally had canvassers all around the country saying, who are they to tell me how to, how to talk? I'll say exactly what I like. Thank you very much. Uh, that was a mistake. Um, but it did also kind of reflect the way we were trying to manage things was to get people to talk about abortion in a certain way. So there was also an element of truth in that. And I think, I think that could, we could have handled that a lot better. I think one way and another. Uh, I also think we didn't have any money when we started in technically in the actual Together for Yes campaign. In fact, the very first day when we launched a journalist, we were having a press conference and there were three of us who were leaders, but the question happened to come to me. Well, what about money? Um, and where are you getting your money from? Because the suspicion is always that you're getting it from abroad, as the other side perhaps were and so on. And I said, well, it's very simple. Not only do we not have any money, we don't even have a bank account at the moment. Um, now, we did then get a bank account quite quickly, but we didn't have any money to start with. And that meant that our posters were coming out very late because we wanted them to last for the two months of the campaign because we never dreamt that we would actually raise enough money to run, actually run, you know, a second or third set of posters. Uh, and the opposition had their posters up well in advance. And 
Well, I think those posters, the opposition's posters, angered the electorate. It also upset all of our fantastic uh, people on the ground who said, where are our posters? We've no posters. We're being beaten before we even start. Um, and I think, again, we should have thought that one through better. I, I, I'm not saying we would have had more money, but we should definitely have thought it through. In fact, uh, I suppose, actually, there was a very moving moment. I'll come back to that because we put out a crowdfunder and uh, it started at six o'clock in the morning or something on a Tuesday. And we were hoping to raise something like 25,000 or 50,000 by the end of the week. And by lunchtime that day, we had reached our target. So that was very moving. And I think it indicated to us that we were going to be able to raise money. And we did. We did. Um, but overall, you know, it was a very thoughtful campaign. We didn't do, I mean, there were times when our uh, people, our People were not happy with us because headquarters was too limiting or too restrictive or too cautious. But overall, I don't think we put many feet wrong. We were, were very seasoned at abortion campaigns in Ireland. We had just been through marriage equality, many of us uh, campaigning on the front line. This was a much bigger campaign, but we had learned a lot from that 2015 experience. And while we were nervous and anxious all the time. I think, I think, I think people really did incredibly well. And people also, people who normally disagreed with one another politically about all kinds, because we had every single shade possible from the center over to, uh, the, the fur much further left. People did actually manage to work together quite remarkably. Because I think there was that real sense of a common cause, a common purpose. And we had, and that came about from having started that process of building that six years earlier. Well, Alva, thanks so much for, for sharing all of that with us. That's been really, really great and insightful. So I appreciate uh, all that you've given us uh, today. Thank you. 